Hello, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College senior thesis process and experience. I'm your producer, Albert Corellis, and today you'll be hearing host Amelie Andreas talk with comparative literature major Covey Subramanian. In his thesis, Covey dove into the world of new media, exploring how the computer age has ushered in a new era of world building. Here, Covey can explain it better than I can. My name is Covey Subramanian. I am from Westchester, New York, a little town called Hastings-on-Hudson. I was in the comparative literature department, and my thesis is called Worlds Between Bits. Wow, that is very concise. Yeah. What are these worlds? What are the bits that they're in between? And kind of what does this mean? Yeah, well, I don't know how descriptive a title it is. When I put it in, I was going for like concision. Seems like that was the edgy thing to do at the time. Everyone else's thesis was like something, something, colon, and then like a bunch of stuff. And I was like, well, Mm -hmm. I should probably just do the opposite of what everyone else did. Worlds because it's a thesis about fictional worlds Mm -hmm. and bits because a bit is one piece of information, one yes or no question. And because it is about new media specifically. So new media means any sort of media that essentially would not exist without Mm -hmm. computers. Worlds through bits, worlds that exist in new media. Yeah. A lot packed into three words. So we're talking kind of about the idea of like computer bits and the digital age and then how these are creating different like worlds that we can engage in. And if we're talking about new media being like media that can only exist with computers, that's pretty much almost all media that we consume on a daily basis, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know necessarily really the history behind the term new media, but yeah, I think most things that we create now use computers in some way. I think some of it you could say like, oh, well, we could probably do that without computers. Mm -hmm. You know, so for example, if you take a film photograph and then you touch it up somewhere, then I don't know if we'd call it new media because you could probably have the same sort of thing without that. But Mm -hmm. in any case, yeah, most things, I think most things that we consume you could probably classify as new media, anything that involves digital photography, mm-hmm. anything that's compressed in a file, anything like that. How did you end up getting into this world of new media or the worlds that new media is creating? Essentially, I started from a point of what were some pieces of media that really spoke to me that I felt like I could spend a year writing about. And so I did that. The next step was to find out, okay, what mm-hmm. do I find compelling about these? And in what way do I find them compelling similarly? What ties them together? So for me, that was fictional worlds. <laughs> Essentially, what I was trying to do here is push against this idea that a story or any piece of art has a beginning and an end, and it's this linear thing, this plot line, and that that is how it is functioning, and that that's like what's important about it. What I was essentially talking about was fiction that, you know, maybe it had a plot line, maybe it had a chronology, but where that's not really the primary level on which it was functioning. The reason I talk about that in terms of new media is because I believe it is especially common in new media for various reasons I discussed in the thesis to have this emphasis on this world um, as opposed to on the linear narrative. And when I talk about a world, there's no order to it necessarily. It's not like one thing after another. It's not numbered. It's not a line. It's more like a map to borrow a metaphor. Having that world is something that in itself can be really gratifying and wonderful and is a major way, even if we don't always think about it, or even if a lot of 
theorists don't think about it that way. When the average person interacts with a piece of art, loves a piece of art, a big reason for that is because of the world that it takes place in or because of the world that it creates. And again, also, I would say that, you know, when we talk about a world, it's not just talking about something like Lord of the Rings where there's all this lore and it's like, oh, it takes place in this place and there's this country next to this other thing. But there's also more general aesthetic aspects to it. The logic of the world, what are the ethics of the world? What are the aesthetics of the world? Those are all things that there's a character to the, to the text, so to speak. I see. Yeah. At the end of the day, the media is just a delivery device for worlds and world building, immersive universes that you can kind of lose yourself in is what I'm getting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to me, that is more interesting. Mm -hmm. Throughout the entire process, I was very much concerned with staying focused on the actual experience that people have with art, the the sort of phenomenological Mm. lens. I'm less interested in the history or the behind the scenes or the highly theoretical, anything that's too abstracted, Mm -hmm. too removed from people's experience. I wanted to be really focused on what somebody experiences when they watch or play or have some sort of interaction with this art. So more like big picture than stuck in the details and trying to catalog, I don't know, the etymology of new media or something kind of stuffy like that. Huh. That's interesting because I think in a sense, I think most people reading this thesis would think about it the opposite way Mm. in the sense that I'm less interested in kind of the big picture, long historical timeline of all of this. And I'm Mm. interested in the details of this specific work the details of how one experiences mm-hmm. this specific work rather than, you know, how is the human race shifting and how we look at art or whatever, you know? Yeah. You mentioned that you kind of started from this place of thinking about what texts and and what media you were interested in, and then going from there to come up with your thesis mm-hmm. and looking at the connections between them. Is that like typical for a comparative literature thesis? Or is this something that you were kind of taking your own spin on what it means to like even do a complete thesis? <laughs> I don't really know. (laughs) I didn't really ask anybody. I think I just knew that Mm. I was going to spend a year writing about the Odyssey or something. I would probably not be able to finish. (laughs) Yeah, we had enough of that in in intro, Hume. We don't need to talk about the Odyssey anymore. Sorry to all those classics majors, but... (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, people are into the Odyssey. The point is, if you are really into the Odyssey and that is something you're really Mm -hmm. passionate about, then that is totally something that someone would probably want to write a thesis about. But that's not how I feel about it. Whereas I was writing about Adventure Time and Earthbound and those things are just like very dear to me. And I don't have to put myself in a mode to think about those. Mm -hmm. I don't have to like hype myself up to be like in my academic brain to think about those. Mm -hmm. I think they're very natural and and the experience I have with them is not something that I feel like I had to really work to get. Mm -hmm. It was something that organically arose Yeah, definitely a thesis life hack right there. I think also part of my desire to write about these works. I think to a certain extent, I was trying to go against the grain. I was being a little bit perverse in terms of these are not things that people would typically write about. Mm -hmm. These are not things that would normally be seen as like very serious, which is fine, but also Mm -hmm. I think are like important. And it was just kind of me saying like, I'm going to write about what I think is important, not what other people think is important necessarily. Yeah. This might actually be a good time to, because for people who maybe haven't read your thesis, Mm -hmm. could you give us like a little bit of background on the texts that you chose and maybe why they're important to you and how they tied into this point that you were trying to make about fictional worlds? Yeah. So I wrote about two texts. I had initially wanted to maybe include a third, but time just didn't allow it. 
the rate at which I worked and the amount of work that I put into each of these two chapters just wasn't feasible. The thesis was already extremely long, mm-hmm. but I wrote about a video game called Earthbound, which is from sometime in the 90s. I don't really remember, but it's kind of a cult game. It's a it's what the genre is what's known as a JRPG. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if you've never heard of it, I think the closest comparison is for somebody who really isn't familiar with any sorts of video games would be like Pokemon or something. Although it's very, it's very different from Pokemon. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's the graphics are very pixely and it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not like this huge, like open sprawling, Mm -hmm. you know, you can go anywhere or whatever kind of thing. There's very much like a story to it, Mm -hmm. but there's also like certain kind of combat things or whatever. It doesn't have the typical video game aesthetic or sensibilities. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny. It takes place in a modern era. Yeah, it's very witty. It's very ironic. It's very self-aware, breaking the fourth wall a lot. That's another thing that is pretty different about it that makes it notable. So that's one work. The second work that I wrote about is the TV show Adventure Time, which, yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar with that, even if they don't watch cartoons. But it is a cartoon. It ran some point in the 2000s. There's like nine seasons so oh my gosh i didn't even know that they start off very episodic they start to kind of mm-hmm. blend into each other more so in the later seasons yeah no thanks i think that gives like a lot of context as well all of these things you're describing because i'm not familiar with earthbound but just from knowing adventure time like that is a very immersive intricate world mm-hmm. um that they've created there that appeals to like you know people of all ages and has its own like inner workings, which is yeah. super fascinating. So I totally understand where you're coming from mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I think that's that was part of it. Well, I'll tell people who are not familiar with Earthbound is like if you've ever played Super Smash Bros. or seen someone play Super Smash Bros. Mm-hmm. There's like a little kid with a baseball cap named Ness, uh-huh. and Ness is from Earthbound. So that's the mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the association. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh! Is it like part of the wider? nintendo universe or something or is it just like a little cameo like maybe the developers were buddies or something do you know oh actually i mean i have a bit in my thesis about the development um oh cool yeah it's 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 kind of an interesting little anecdote essentially the guy who created it who was the game director he wrote every piece of dialogue mm-hmm. in it and he came up with the concept and everything his name is uh shikisato itoi I think I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. that correctly, but anyway, he is not a video game developer. This is the only video game he made, except oh. I think later on he made some sort of fishing game or something, <laughs> but he was actually a copywriter. So uh, he made ads um, oh. and he was meeting with Nintendo for some sort of ad campaign. And he was like, Hey, <laughs> I want to make this video game. I have this idea. And he was stuck in the hospital or something. And he mm-hmm. ended up playing this game, Dragon Quest, like a, just like a lot mm-hmm. and he was like wouldn't it be cool if like this took place in like, like modern times and you know it's was, it was kind of like a city mm-hmm. and there's like some like real kids and whatnot and typically you have all these rpgs they have dragons and they're like medieval and there's like swords and it's this mm-hmm. crazy kind of fantasy land he was like taking itself super seriously yeah or even it just it's very like removed and he, he thought it would be cool to have it in the, some like a more mm-hmm. modern urban context so he came to them and he explained that to them mm-hmm. and they were basically like yeah you could have an idea for a game but that doesn't 
really mean that much. A lot of people have ideas. What's really hard about making a video game is Mm -hmm. being able to have a plan and being able to follow through. And essentially, they just told him all these things about why it was difficult to make happen. Mm -hmm. He was riding the bullet train home and Mm -hmm. he said he was like crying on the way home because he was so discouraged. But he had certain connections and a certain amount of clout because he was already a very successful Mm -hmm. copywriter. He did a lot of stuff. He actually, I think he wrote, he co-wrote a book of short stories with Haruki Murakami. Oh, wow. That's cool. Guy's done a lot of stuff. He's a kind of a jack of all trades, but (laughs) essentially he was able to get the video game made and it turned out really great. But because of also because of his different background, it was super different from most Nintendo games. And as to what you were saying, I don't Mm -hmm. think it's, I don't think there's any sort of like world connection with any other Nintendo games, as far as I know, except for the sequel that he made. That's such a fascinating story, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it sets the scene a little bit. That's kind of, I'm pretty sure that's what I opened my uh, Oh yeah, oh yeah. first chapter. That's the little anecdote that I opened with. So what did your process look like while you were writing this thesis? Was it a lot of watching Adventure Time episodes and like gaming? Or was it a little bit more, more serious and academia e. I actually thought that there'd be a lot of video game playing. Mm-hmm. There was almost no video game playing. Ah, no. Yeah, I had played through the game before a couple times, mm-hmm. and I love it. But when you're looking for quotes or when you're looking for things like that, mm-hmm. it's not super useful to play through the game because you have to start from the beginning. You know what I mean? You can't just like flip, to, you know, in a book, you can just flip mm-hmm. to the page in the middle, whatever page you want. So I ended up, you know, for pulling quotes and things, I ended up looking up mm-hmm. quotes or looking at like videos of someone silently mm-hmm. playing the game or something like that. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't that much video game playing, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And th- there was a decent amount of cartoon watching, um, which was, yeah, I think useful in that sense that chapter, some parts about it were easier. Mm-hmm. So the way I started was doing a lot of research. I think my thesis advisor, who was super helpful because with such a huge process, it's very easy to go off the rails and just have too many ideas. And in fact, you know, I had a lot of ideas that I couldn't include. And the Mm -hmm. thesis ended up still being like, how many pages is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was long enough that I'm fairly confident that no one on my board read the whole thing. It's 132 pages. Oh, my gosh. Even just starting off with 100 and something is very impressive. Yeah, I'm sure they skimmed it. I truly, I don't know if there's anybody who read the entirety of it except for myself and my thesis advisor, but who knows? <laughs> That's one way to make sure that people don't ask you any questions that you don't want to answer. Make your thesis so long, there's no way they can read the whole thing. We're issuing a challenge with this podcast. Someone, please go read the entirety of Covey's thesis. We'll give them a high five or something. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of ironic because I, you know, aside from the length, I endeavored very much to make it readable. I didn't want to make it too clouded with academies. Mm-hmm. So I think it it is fairly easy to read if you have like <laughs> a lot of hours on, on hand, but mm-hmm. most people don't, especially for like a random thesis. But I still didn't have space or time to put in a lot of ideas that I wanted to. I wanted to have a whole other chapter. But nevertheless, I was able to do it and I was able to have it work, I think, largely because of the support I had from my thesis advisor, who gave me a lot of structure and essentially said, you know, the first thing you want to do is look at what other people have said about fictional worlds. Mm -hmm. Look at what exists that you can lean on already, which is not something Mm -hmm. that I was super, you know, jumping to do because, again, a lot of these people write in these styles that are not the most interesting Mm -hmm. to me. A lot of these people are very much concerned with the categorization and with the abstract.
abstract and, you know, like I was saying, this kind of big picture yeah. thing rather than really, again, the, the person's experience with a piece of art. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of these fictional world theorists are very much concerned with this sort of philosophical, ontological question of worlds. What is a world? Does it exist? In what way does it exist? Mm-hmm. How can we categorize it? That sort of formal logic thing, which mm-hmm. is not super interesting to me, largely because this concept of fictional worlds is something that is taken, uh, almost appropriated from analytical philosophy or analytic philosophy. Mm-hmm. People like, I think David Lewis is his name, is one of the first people to talk about it. A whole bunch of people mm-hmm. talking about the worlds. They start talking about possible worlds mm-hmm. in quotation marks. So then these literary theorists take that and they apply it to talking about fiction, mm-hmm. talking about books and everything else. So a lot of it was not necessarily stylistically the same or the project was not necessarily the same as what I was doing here, Mm -hmm. which I think a lot of what I did almost bordered on criticism as opposed to theory. Mm. Yeah. So that's where I started was reading a lot of those and then also reading about game studies because there's not, I mean, there there are a lot of game studies journals, but relative to a lot of these other things, it's smaller. It's a new mm-hmm. field. It's not a field that is tremendously new active field, because definitely. there's not a lot of funding for it or not a lot of people wanting to go into it. I don't really know. I did not look into the, <laughs> to the reasoning, but it's pretty easy to get through most of the fundamental texts. Mm-hmm. That is something also I appreciate about game studies is comparatively, they are all very accessible texts. Mm-hmm. They write what they mean and they explain what they mean very clearly. Mm-hmm. Probably has something to do with the fact that they are not really embraced into the fold of academia um, and these very like heady ideas. So they're like, fuck it, I'm just going to write for like, mm-hmm. you know, normal people because I'm writing about a topic mm-hmm. that I, I'm going to write about because normal people are interested in it. Not to say that people who like to read or talk about art films or whatever are not normal, because <laughs> I also like those things, but there's a different orientation there. Yeah. In any case, looking at those, and then a little bit, not as much, uh, but a little bit of research on TV and serialized film, I guess you might call it, and what the what the literature is on that. So looking at that and then you know trying to synthesize them and then just writing a lot of notes, mm-hmm. writing a detailed outline of what... I want to talk about what I think is like important to talk about. And then, you know, I I spent a long time, to be honest, I spent a long time researching longer than was super useful. And at a certain point in speaking with Jake, he was like, okay, I think we should probably try and reorient in a different way. And he said, just write this amount of pages for the next time we meet, which I know some thesis advisors like to do and some thesis advisors don't. Mm -hmm. Um, some people like that and some people don't. I thought that I wanted it to be very like freeform. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was very freeform a lot of the time, the process. Um, there was a lot of freedom, but I needed some amount of structure. And that was one piece of structure mm-hmm. that I thought was super useful. So then I started writing pages and it started veering somewhat from whatever the outline was, but it became clear to me what I wanted to talk about and what I wanted to what I wanted to say, um, what I thought was important and what was not. And a lot of these ideas the articulation came in actually writing it down and putting it into paragraphs. So that's essentially what the, what the project looked like. That's essentially what the process looked like. Yeah. It can definitely be really hard to kind of switch track from that, like research gathering information mode to this like more synthetic writing mode where you're like, Oh my gosh. Okay. I know all these things, but now what am I going to do with it? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have like, any other unexpected challenges when you were writing your thesis? 
I mean, I think one part is that it was just, it's extremely long, which can be a challenge. Maybe the only other thing I would add is that some of these articles, papers, books were a little bit difficult to access, especially because we went online partway through. So I had to, that was restricted to whatever I could find online mm-hmm. slash whatever I, I had already taken. Luckily, a lot of game studies stuff is published online intentionally and nice. published for free. I like so it. So that wasn't that difficult. It was a little bit more difficult with yeah certain things related to television and certain texts related to fictional worlds. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I think in general, it wasn't super, super impossible. Mm-hmm. And then maybe something else that was an ongoing challenge was just trying to make sure it remained readable and remained intelligible because a lot of the time I, I did end up talking about pretty theoretical topics. It was just really important to me that I knew what I was saying. You know, I think it's very easy to use the cloudiness of sounding smart as a cop-out for really figuring out what you mean. Because if you're kind of vague about it, then nobody can say that they disagree. Yeah, that's definitely a big challenge. Yeah, I'm not trying to dunk on the way other people write their theses because I think people will often write in a way that is Mm -hmm. very rigorous and at the same time, very academic. I think that's just something that I didn't want to do. And I mean, it makes sense because it's a risk to go against the normative way that things are written because you're trying to get into grad school after this. That might be something that people in certain fields are looking for is that you know how to write a paper in an academic style. Yeah. I mean, at the time I was writing it, I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to grad school for comparative literature. You know, my attitude was like, I'm going to write the way I want to write it. And what's important to me is that it's helping me think and helping me make something that I feel Mm -hmm. is gratifying, that I feel is worthwhile, that I'm proud of. Yeah. So I I mean, in a sense, I went as far as I was able to go. (laughs) I actually had asked my thesis advisor Mm -hmm. if I could write it in a platonic dialogue to begin wow. with and he said no <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah damn there goes that idea yeah well somebody else might be able to might be able to because i don't think there's really any checks in place to stop you from doing that i don't think they're gonna have you know let you spend a year writing your thesis in a platonic dialogue and then be like well all the other aspects are here, but you can't graduate because you wrote it it's in this written in a way. platonic dialogue yeah. no. Yeah, I think it's definitely that might be one of those situations where it's a, a better to ask for forgiveness than permission. If that's truly like what you're the hill that you're going to die on, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were talking a little bit about the the fact that you weren't super interested in going to grad school. What have you kind of ended up spending the past year or so after redoing or working towards? Has that been impacted at all by your thesis or your experience writing your thesis? Yeah. So I graduated in May of 2020. Mm -hmm. I went home and I got a job working for a foster care agency as a tutor, which was a great job. I did it for about a year and I learned a lot. I think that what I really took from writing this thesis and applied there was really just how to write and how to be clear and how to plan writing and larger projects. I was working with primarily high schoolers and a lot of what I was teaching them wasn't just specifically, oh, this is how you make this sound good. or This is how you multiply this or that. It was larger habits in terms of studying, in terms of you know working on if they have some sort of longer project that they want to work on, showing them how to do that. 
and showing them how to approach things that might not always seem like the easiest thing to do. So I think that this definitely helped me do that. But yeah, it sounds like having an experience like the thesis experience under your belt would be a huge asset in that type of situation. Do you have any advice about, you know, read the thesis experience, maybe like your favorite piece of writing advice that you would give to these students that you were tutoring? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I would say is don't bite off more than you can chew. I think it's good to challenge yourself, Mm -hmm. but I also think that it's good to take on tasks that you can conceivably do a good job at. I don't think that you're going to learn how to handle more through just drowning yourself. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to learn how to do a bunch of things badly and how to panic. Mm -hmm. But I think that that was a big thing that I learned over my mm-hmm. time at Reed is that it's better to really focus and you know put my heart into something than it is to try and overextend myself or try and do a million different things poorly. Yeah. I guess the other thing I would say in terms of thesis, I would say, you know, make sure you're writing about something that you care about, not what you think that other people are going to care about or not what you think that other people are expecting you to write about. If you're a literature student, write about something that actually speaks, really speaks to you, not something that you think is really cool or like will show that you're like really smart. Uh, Look fancy on your resume. Ooh, this person knows so much about Plato. Unless you actually really genuinely care about Plato, which then all power to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And some people really, some people really love Plato. Mm -hmm. And I think that's cool. I mean, I love Plato in a sense too. Um, but again, the the experience that I have with Plato is not the same. It's not so seamless. It's not so organic. There's mm-hmm. a lot more work involved. There's a lot more extending my mind. It's not quite as natural to me. And it's not the kind of thing that I have the same amount of stamina for. Whereas if it's something that it feels like, mm-hmm. you know, you can just swim in it. I think that that makes for a really great, a really great thesis. And also like, you know, most people, you know, I guess going into academia, you have more time for this, but Mm -hmm. most people are not going to have that much time to spend writing what is essentially a book about something that they care about. Yeah. So, you know, pick, pick something that you really, really do care about because it's a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely really helpful to see thesis instead of like an obligation is an opportunity that you're not going to probably have again for the rest of your life for most people. So yeah, thanks a ton for coming on the podcast and talking about your awesome thesis. And yeah, good luck with all of your your future opportunities that you're looking forward to. And thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Covey. Maybe this weekend I'll take Amelie up on that challenge to read your thesis. Hell, it might even entice me enough to finally finish Earthbound. I hope you'll join us again to hear more from students and alumni about what it means to burn your draft. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Albert Corellis. Your lovely host today was Reed student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from Joe Janiga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.